Good morning, church. Open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 10. If you're visiting Christ Church this morning, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, we're glad you're with us this morning as we're continuing to look at the teachings of Jesus, which we call the message. What is Jesus teaching us about God, about ourselves, and about the world in which we live? How do we engage that as followers of Jesus, and and what difference does that make if we do? Again, we'll be in Mark 10, verse 17 here in just a moment. Uh, The past couple weeks, uh, we have focused on some questions that are hard to answer. Uh, We want to answer properly, but deep down inside, we may actually have a different answer in our hearts. Uh, Two weeks ago, we asked the question, have you ever been offended by God's goodness? Has God ever been good to someone you don't necessarily think deserves it and it bothers you? Again, our first response is, well, certainly not. But deep down inside, we're like, yeah, I don't like that guy. And he made a deathbed confession, and now he's saved, and I don't like that. Have we ever been offended? Last week, I asked you the question, have you ever been disappointed with God when he didn't answer a request that he had to answer for you to survive? Has God, have you ever prayed a prayer that if he would just answer, it would be beautiful, and you think it's his will, and he doesn't answer it, and you wonder, where is he? Has God ever disappointed us? Today, I want to ask you the question, has God ever seemed unreasonable? Has he ever requested something of you that just, it's not right, it's just unreasonable, it's, it's unrealistic? I uh, sent some emails out to some of my buddies, who some are funny and some are thoughtful, and I said, uh, what's the most unreasonable thing you've ever been asked to do? And I got varied responses, some of my favorites. Uh, work on a holiday for someone else so they can stay home with their family. How many of you think that's fairly unreasonable? I remember God's watching. Let's try that again. How many of you think that's unreasonable? All right. Just want to make sure we remember he's here. All right. Second, to give financially to an organization. Someone asks you to give to an organization, and you don't necessarily believe that it's a good thing. Is that unreasonable? Can I ask, is it unreasonable to check out at a store that you just spent money you wish you hadn't spent and then ask if you want to give another two bucks to something else? Does that bother anybody but me? All right. I'm going to pray that stops. All right. Okay. Next thing. Oh, by the way, I'm really cheap. Can we say that for the record? Okay. Uh, this, this one blew me away. Uh, f- he told me a friend called him and asked him to give him a 5 a.m. wake-up call. <laughs> Seriously, buy an alarm clock. It's not that hard. Okay. Um, another guy said a friend asked him to pay him under the table so he wouldn't be taxed on it. Church, is that unreasonable? Oh, look at some of you go, is it? No, no, it is. If you're doing that, repent. That's wrong. Church, come on. we got to wake up. My goodness. Okay, true stories. Uh, my friend uh, Mike preaches in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's been a friend for a long, long time. He told me that a guy came to their church and said he hadn't eaten in several days and was very, very hungry. So one of his staff guys put him in his car and drove him about a mile down to the Arby's to give him a meal. And on the way to the meal, the guy said, I'm not really interested in Arby's. I'm hankering for ribs. <laughs> oh, there you are. There you are. Yeah. Interesting, right? Uh, and then my buddy Ron Otto, who preaches in Lincoln, Illinois, said he went into the hospital to see a lady who just came out of surgery and asked her if there's anything he could do for her, and she asked him to scratch her incision. Okay. And you're going to want to know it was back surgery, okay? Everybody relax. Still, how many of you think that's fairly unreasonable? Okay. When we talk about unreasonable requests, what I, I'm coming to understand something unique, and you're going to see how this plays into it. It's really the unreasonableness of the request is based on your relationship with the person. I want you to ponder. If my wife Heather would need a kidney transplant, 
it would not be unreasonable for her to ask me, would it? No, why? Because she's my wife and I love her and I care and I want her to be healthy. So that request wouldn't be out of sort because of our relationship. Yet, if I were walking through to get an iced tea at the end of this service and I went to the cafe to get an iced tea and one of you said, can I have your iPad? That's unreasonable. Which is funny because an internal organ is not unreasonable. But a device I could go to Walmart and replace in an hour is. What's the difference between the two requests? Who you are to me. When I ask you the question, does God ever seem unreasonable? It will always come down to who he is to you. Now, this isn't a guilt, shameful message that you're going, I I stink. We've already decided we stink, haven't we? And we're not good at this. But the unreasonableness of God is always related to our relationship with him. And I want to show you what Mark records. In fact, it's one of the few things of uh, personal interaction Jesus had with somebody that's recorded in three of the Gospels, which means it was significant enough that when they talked about Jesus, this story kept coming up. And let's look at it, verse 17 of Mark 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an interesting question because it it presents an understanding of God and it shows a misconception of God at the same time. He comes and says, what must I do to inherit? What, What must I do to inherit? Now, if my kids came to me and said, what must I do, Dad, to get an inheritance from you? My response would be nothing. You will get an inheritance from me if I have anything left because you're my sons. You didn't earn that. You don't earn an inheritance any more than you earn being born. It's based on a relationship. So he understands that he has to be given to him, but he says, what must I do? Verse 18, Jesus said, why do you call me good? I want to stop, and we've noticed this over the past five weeks. This is the fourth time in five weeks I've showed you that a question is being asked of Jesus, and he won't answer it. He answers a deeper question. He comes at them with something a little bit more significant. He says, no one is good except God alone. So Jesus is asking about his understanding. He says to him, are you calling me good because you know I'm God? Or are you calling me good to get something? And that's a question we all have to answer. Is he God or not? Because the way you inherit eternal life is to accept Jesus Christ as God. And if you give yourself to accepting Jesus Christ as God, you will be, Paul says, a joint heir in all that Jesus inherits. So what must I do? Nothing except acknowledge Jesus for who he says he is. You see, one receives eternal life by accepting Jesus as God and not doing anything by their own power. The Bible's clear about that. Verse 19, the man doesn't answer his question. Jesus proceeds, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Verse 21, if you write in your Bibles, and once again, if you have electronic, just highlight it. Verse 21 is so incredibly significant to us today. When you know something's missing in your life, when you know you're not where you're supposed to be and you're not right with God, and you wonder, is God in heaven hating on you? Is God sick of you? Is he telling the angels, why did I make that one? Listen to Jesus' response 
when he says to him, how have you treated your neighbors? Of all the Ten Commandments listed here, they all have to do with how he treated his neighbor. None of them had to do with how he treated who? God. The commandments about God are left out because Jesus knows the issue is always one of two things. We have this dilemma in each one of us. Either we strive to be right with God and ignore the needs of our neighbors, or we try to be a good moral person and love our neighbors and never give glory to God. It's a tension many of us struggle with. In fact, when I said that, you know where you're slotted. Some of us are more concerned about what our neighbors think about us than what God thinks about us. And some of us care more about what God thinks of us and have no love for our neighbors. You can't be a disciple either way. You can't just love God and hate your neighbor and follow Jesus. And you can't love your neighbor and be a good moral person and ignore God and be a disciple. And it's a tension we all face. I, I face it, you face it. Everyone in here, deny it or not, you do. You lean in your religiosity toward being all about God or all about the world. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to show you how to do both. Because you can't really love your neighbor if you don't love the Lord, and you can't love the Lord if you're not caring for your neighbor. It's, it's the biblical proof. But then it says in verse 21 that even when this guy knows something's missing, how does Jesus treat him? He loves him. Church, that's good news today. That on your worst day, he's pursuing you strongly. And on your best day, he's still pursuing you strongly because you're not there yet. And it's, it's our hope. Verse 21, he says, One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. There's a progression there. You need to get rid of your God so you can follow me as God. And whatever we're asked to get rid of, that one thing missing, one thing lacking, whatever that is, you're not surprised by it. Verse 22, at this the man's face fell. It means it was the worst thing Jesus could have said to him, he just said. He said, how have you lived your life? I'm a good moral person. Then Jesus said, I want you to get rid of the one thing that's replaced the need for God in your life, and his face fell. Because Jesus is going to ask of you the one thing you don't want to give. He's so unreasonable. Why? Because he knows the one thing you're holding on to is in place of God himself. You see, hadn't he done enough? He was a good person. Done some amazing things. Hadn't he done enough? You see, when you're self-sufficient, you only need God when you can't get what you want. When you're a disciple of Jesus, you can't get what you want without God. Do you see the difference? When you have riches and fame and success and people love you, you only need God when things are out of control. But as a disciple, you realize everything's out of control without Jesus. And the man's face fell and he went away sad. Verse 23, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and he said to the disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's not a question, have you noticed? We pose it as a question, how hard is it? It's not what he's asking. He's saying it's difficult when you already have a God to accept Jesus as God. It's a very difficult thing. Jesus was offering him what seemed an unreasonable cost to give rid of all of his security and become insecure in Jesus. It's unreasonable. Let me tell you about this young man because he's, he's a good guy. In fact, he's, he's fairly amazing. Well, he was rich. We know that. The Bible says he had possessions. There's nothing wrong with wealth. 
This is not a sermon about wealth. It's not a teaching about wealth. It's a teaching about a God and which God you want to follow, which God you want to rely on. He was young. Now, I don't know what significance that is, but all three gospel writers recorded he was young. I'm thinking it probably means that he had a lot of opportunity. He was probably born wealthy. He inherited wealth. He understood the power and opportunity of the longevity of his life that was available to him. He was a leader. He was a ruler, it says. It probably means a religious ruler. He was very young. He was very competent. He had a lot of opportunities, and he was a man who knew about God. Fourthly, he was humble. Why do I know he's humble? Because in a large crowd of people, he comes and he bows before Jesus. As a ruler, he could have stood eye to eye and matched Jesus because everyone else who challenged Jesus challenged him face to face. This man humbled himself and submitted himself to Jesus willingly. So he shows humility. Fifth, he was spiritually aware. He knew in his heart something was missing and he wanted it. He wasn't being arrogant or tricky. He was actually asking a great question. And sixth, he was a moral man. I want you to think about this. If Jesus took the Ten Commandments, lopped off the ones about God, and gave you the ones about how you treat other people, how many of us could have answered the way he did? Of all the commandments about how to treat your neighbor, how are you doing? And this guy goes, I have worked my tail off and disciplined my life since I was born to to be this kind of person. I couldn't say that, could you? I could say, well, I, I had a good day last Thursday. And this guy says, since I've been a kid, I've worked on this. He's a moral man. Would you agree with me? He he's, seems fairly amazing. Of the crowd that gathered around Jesus that day, only Jesus was probably better than this guy. So let's not beat him up and throw him away. He's everything most of us want to become. In fact, what most of us think is the end result. But let me tell you the most unreasonable truth, number one. What I am is not enough. As good as this kid was, it wasn't going to save him. He had a lot going for him, and Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. And when Jesus says, there's one thing you lack, then nothing else matters. Because we're just not enough to save ourselves. He knew that Jesus was speaking about a kingdom, a kingdom that he wanted to be a part of. So he was being offered this kingdom, and yet... He knew he wasn't a part of it. So he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit that? You talk about this kingdom, and I want to be a part of that kingdom. And he humbles himself, and he calls him good. And yet, what is missing? Sin. Most of us define sin, if I can can generalize the audience today. I believe most of us would define sin as the bad things we do. Yet, sin is also the good things we don't do. So there's sins that you commit, and then there's the sin of omission, For instance, my Bible tells me to be gentle. My wife and sons might laugh because in my impatience, sometimes I'm harsh and I'm impatient and I'm not gentle and nurturing and I don't treat them as the treasures they are. My Bible tells me to forgive. And there are times I forgive, but I don't linger in forgiveness I use it as a moment in time. Instead of it being a colon or a comma that carries forgiveness on into the future, I put a period right there and I end it. I don't live in forgiveness. I have forgiven. And you know the difference, don't you? So when I'm unforgiving toward those who I say I've forgiven or I treat them differently or I hold them at arm's length, I'm sinning. So sinning is not just what I do wrong. It's what I don't do right. That's why Romans 3 is so clear 
For we all have sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. When Jesus said there was one thing missing, he didn't change the kid's ritual. He didn't say to him, here's five things I want you to do. He challenged his trust. I want you to abandon everything that makes you defined the way you want to be defined. I want you to get rid of all your security. I I want you to stop caring about what the world thinks or what you can do for yourself. If you really believe by faith that Jesus is the Son of the living God, then there is no command of His that will punish you. So He said, I want you to get rid of your security. I want you to replace the God you're now serving for me as God. And it was hard. And at the moment, it seemed unreasonable. Proverbs 3 was one of those passages that I was taught in church camp a long, long time ago. I remember in fourth grade, probably the first Bible verse outside of John 3, 16, I intentionally held on to. It says this, Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Lean not on your ability to make sense of this world. Lean not on what you think you know to be true. But in all things, trust God's word and learn how to live. It's an abandon your security and become insecure in Jesus, which is so counterproductive for all of us, isn't it? I know I'm talking to an American audience. And what have you been taught from the moment you were hatched? Find out how to do it alone. Figure out a way to prove to everybody. Do you remember the first time you could actually spell your name and you went home and you wrote your name in front of your parents and they tried to help you and you went, ah, ah, I got it. Men, we're the worst. Men, I'm talking to you. We're the worst, aren't we? Yeah, it's funny. You won't let your family help you, but you let your neighbor help you, and then you wonder why your wife's mad. It's called pride. We have been taught that we do it ourselves, we prove ourselves, we make our place, we keep our place, and then we leave, they ought to miss our place. Not in the kingdom of heaven. We are actually to become less relevant, not more. That's how you lean on God's wisdom and not your own. Romans 3.21, but now God has shown us a different way of being right in his sight, not by obeying the law, but by the way promised in the scriptures long ago. We are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus Christ to take away our sins, and we can all be saved the same way no matter who we are or what we've done. The rich young ruler was trying to do more, and Jesus actually asked him to do less. Because he was trying to do more to prove himself, and Jesus wanted him to do less to prove Jesus. That's hard on us, isn't it? I want you to try to be less good and rely on the grace of Jesus Christ. And you're like, but then I'll become worse. No, you actually become better. In God's upside-down economy, when you surrender to who Jesus is, he fixes what you can't. And he fixes it in the delays and the waiting game. It's a trust issue. Let me tell you unreasonable truth number two. The first one is, you're not enough alone. The second is, I can make minor adjustments rather than die. This man wanted to tweak instead of surrender. And I'm not judging the motives of his heart, but when Jesus told him there's one thing missing, when Jesus said there's one thing missing, what's the one thing he wants? The missing thing. When I, if I tell you right now, God is going to be unreasonable with you, instantly your hearts know the one thing you don't want to give up. The one thing you don't want to give away. What is the one thing that God would ask you to, quote unquote, sell to lean on him more fully? You already know what it is. 
See, this is the beautiful part. I get to preach this sermon, not tell you what to do, walk off stage, and you already know. Because you're there going, yeah, that's the thing that I, that's my security. I don't want to give it up. Now, if I had to open the message by saying this, can you trust God? This church would have harumphed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can trust God. What if God says, give me the one thing that you got hidden in your back pocket that you don't think he knows about? It's the time I came downstairs in junior church when I was a kid, and my mom would always give me 50 cents for the offering, and I decided, well, God could have half. And I had a quarter in my pocket, and my mom said, did you put all the money in the offering? And I had a, I have this tell, you know what that is, when you reveal you're lying. When I put my hand in my pocket and grabbed the other quarter, my mom said, what's in your pocket? Nothing. And I had to pull out my hand and show her the quarter I didn't give. And I got a lecture about what belongs to God, what belongs to mom, and what will never belong to me. (laughs) I learned a valuable lesson that day. Minor adjustments versus dying. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Hard, unreasonable at times. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed. Did you notice this? The disciples were like, ah, dang it. Every time he's talking, he's going, it's getting worse. We thought we were going to get heaven and clouds and harps and all this great food and everything was going to be simple. And they were more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? This is so unreasonable. And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. In other words, you're not enough. And if you keep trying to work to get close enough to Jesus without Jesus being everything, you never get close to Jesus. How come the statistics for sin are the same inside the church as they are outside the church? How come the divorce rate, cheating, lying, stealing, the simple things of life, how come Christians don't demonstrate themselves statistically to be any different than those people who don't know Jesus? Why? Well, here's why. Because we have a false belief that as long as we give God something, it's better than nothing. And God says, no, I don't ask for something. I ask for what? Everything. And some of us are reconsidering right now. I don't know if I'd have followed Jesus if I'd have known he wanted everything. Then you were misled by the people who introduced you to Jesus. He has never once asked for anything less than everything. In fact, he tells you, you're going to have to willingly end your life to be my disciple. You're going to have to die. Mark 8, 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Luke 9, 25. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? To offer Jesus your best on your best day isn't good enough, and to offer him yourself on your worst day is no different than your best day. That he says, I want everything. Because I can't work with this. I need to reinvent that by the power of the resurrection and make you brand new. Fill you with my spirit. Take your gifts that you were given from birth and use those to promote my kingdom. Our mistake is replacing what God wants with what we want to give. Now, some of you are thinking, well, he wants my money. No, no, no. For some of you, it's not your money. You're already generous. For some of you, it's your time. It's easier for some of us to write a check than it is to give an hour. We have an hour for many things, but do you have an hour for the Lord? Can you come away from this world to spend time with God 
and say no to something the world says you need. And for others, it's not time and cash. It's our, ourselves. It's wanting to be different, to live more lovingly and gently and forgiving. See, Jesus came to give us what we can't get on our own so that we can give it to those who can't get it on their own. We are a part of his process to save this world. And first of all, it means dying to ourselves so that the world becomes more important than me. You see, we only find God's pleasure in the midst of submission. It's when you surrender yourself to what he's offering you. The rich young man came to him and said, I, I've lived a good moral life. Jesus said, I love you. I know you have. Here's what I want you to do. You have a God that's holding you back from loving the real God. Give up your former God. And he walked away sad. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Interesting. Do you remember that old uh, recruiting uh, tool or, or slogan that they used for the armed services? Looking for a few good men. They stole that from God. Second Chronicles 16.9, he's looking for people who are willing to give everything up to follow him. And when he gets those people by the name of Abraham and Sarah, or a young girl named Mary, or a former killer of his people named Saul, when they're willing to give up all of their security, and they're willing to do whatever he asks of them, even at great expense, he calls it faith. And faith overcomes sin every time. And what I love about God is I want to remind you of the goodness of God. He's looking for hearts that are willing to give it all away, to give it all up, to surrender. I love when Sarah finds out at the age of 90 she's going to have a baby. She laughs. And instead of God striking her dead for laughing, God says, name your kid laughter. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Can you, laughter, come on in. He comes running in. Hey. And his mom's too old to pick him up. It's just a funny scene. I mean, seriously. By the time he's, you know, anyway, you get the point. So, I could go all day. But I love a God who says, let's call him laughter because I shocked you. Don't you love a God who loves you that much? Who he says, I'm going to ask for a very unreasonable thing from you. But when you give it to me, I will reward you with life eternal. Not only life in the future, but life right now. I will give you your heart's desire. You won't miss anything you ever give up. We like to say around here that faith is found on the other side of obedience. You'll never know what faith is until you obey completely. And when I was a younger preacher, I preached this message. And to be honest with you, I put this kid right in hell. I preached him right out of the kingdom, right into hell. He refused to honor Jesus. He was gone. He was lost. God's going to start the fires of hell with this guy. I had it all figured out. And a very gentle, wonderful, God-fearing Bible college professor was visiting that Sunday, and he walked up to me and was very kind. He said a couple things he liked about my sermon. Then he looked at me and said, but young man, don't be surprised if you don't meet this young man in heaven one day. And he blew the doors off me because he said his story is not over. How do we not know that the rich young ruler wasn't there on the day of Pentecost accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Because how many of us turned the first time we heard? Isn't it good news to know that the grace of Jesus keeps returning until we reject it or accept it? His mercy is offered to us. And could you imagine if this rich young ruler was there on the day of Pentecost when he looked around and he saw the Spirit of God moving and changing hearts if he might not have thought to himself, possibly, and I almost gave this up for money? 
No regrets, right church? See, the question this morning is, will we submit? How do you know you're surrendered to Jesus? What do you do when he asks you something unreasonable? You see, here's the truth. It's not going to be unreasonable when you know how much he loves you. When something is asked unreasonable by somebody that loves me, my first response is, how can I make this happen? If something unreasonable is asked of me by someone I don't know, the question is, how can I get out of here as quick as possible? Right now, if your heart is saying, I don't want to deal with this, I ask you to fall in love with the one who loves you that passionately. And for those of us who know the love of Jesus, is it ever unreasonable when the man who died on the cross for us is the one who asks of us to do this one thing? See, today's a day of surrender. And the beautiful part is he's already told you what it is. Around this room are tables with lamps on them. For those of you who have never made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I know what your one thing is. You have to let him cleanse you from your sin. The sins you've done and the sins you, of the things you should have done and didn't. Jesus Christ is the only way through this. And by doing that, submitting to him, you take on his power, his authority, and his forgiveness so that you can live a life that is moral and good and right, all for his glory and for the world's benefit. So this morning, will we surrender? If you'll surrender, go to the tables, stay where you are, pray and talk to the Lord, seek someone after service, but don't let this day pass without taking a knee at the feet of Jesus like this young man did and asking him, Lord, what do you want from me? Because you're my everything. Let's stand together and sing.